Would you guys just give a warm applause to the praise and worship team today? Praise God for them, for their gifts. Amen. We honor them for their gifts that they give. And what a beautiful time in the Lord. Um, we're in this series. Uh, we're just kind of looking at some events leading up to Easter. How many of you are excited for Easter this year? Amen. We're excited. So we know that we kind of get to Sunday, the Resurrection Sunday, and then we do Good Friday. And um, But as we think about that, as we've been, as a church, just going through different texts and books of the Bible, one of the things that we decided to do was just to look at some of these events leading up to the cross and just unpack some of that. So the main uh, text that we'll be in today and for the next few weeks is starting in like Matthew 26, round about there, 27, and, and uh, leading to the cross. And so you can definitely turn to your Bibles there. But I just want to read something to you out of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And there's, there's four words. The title of this series is called Jesus in My Place. How many of you know that that Jesus made a substitutionary atonement. And some of you are like, well, what does that mean? It means that, that when Jesus died on the cross, he actually died in our place. Amen. And so the essence of the gospel, the essence of the good news of Jesus Christ is, is that Jesus, all these things that are happening to Jesus, he did them in our place. So Jesus wasn't guilty. Amen. Jesus was totally innocent. So who is guilty? Somebody, remember we did this, we've done this before. Take your thumb, everybody get your thumb. Get your thumb out, get your thumb like this, and just go like this. Who's guilty? I'm guilty, amen. Bible says that we're all sinners. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And so we're guilty. We deserve to be betrayed like Jesus was last week. Remember we talked about how Jesus was betrayed. Today, we're going to look at how Jesus was forsaken. We're going to look at how he was accused. We're going to look at all that and how he was punished. But it's not Jesus that deserved that. Who deserved that? We deserve that. Amen. And so Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says this, says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 9, since therefore we have now been justified, and justified there means we are made right with God. In, in other words, we have, it's just as if, this is an easy way that we learned in junior high Sunday school class, thank you, Tia Delia, for that. Uh, justified means just if I had never sinned. That's what justified means. He says, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So Jesus didn't just die for you. He died instead of you. Amen. You understand that? He didn't just die for you, he died instead of you. So Jesus in my place. And that's what this series is all about. And so um, before we get into Matthew 26, 
there's this interesting doctrine that I want to share with you that I think is really important. And that is that, how many of you know that Jesus um, was fully God in eternity past? That at the creation of all things, um, God was with the Son and the Son was with the Holy Spirit and they were all together reigning and ruling over all things in eternity past. Jesus was always God, has always been God. We see this in Colossians, that he's the, the image of the invisible God when we see him enter into humanity. So when Jesus leaves his throne and he enters into humanity, because God and Jesus the, and the Holy Spirit, they had a plan always that for the redemption of humanity, Jesus was going to be the sacrifice. He was going to be the one who would pay the ultimate price to redeem sinners. But there's this interesting thing that happened when God enters into human history as a man. It's not that a man, which is what some religions teach, is that, that, that somehow a man became God. That's not what happened. What happened is God became a man. You understand? And so he took on human flesh. The Bible says that he is the very image of God. And in doing that, he becomes a human being. Um, The Bible says that he did not count equality, equality with God a thing to be grasped. In other words, that there were elements of Jesus, even though he was God, there was elements of his deity that he laid down, aspects of his godlike nature that he put aside to enter into humanity. And there's things that Jesus faces as a human being that um, really are quite astonishing because Jesus now becomes an example to all of us. He gives us a glimpse of what our lives can look like if we're empowered by the Holy Spirit and put God first in our lives. And it's not that you and I are, are, are ever going to be God. The Bible says there is one God, amen? There is only one God, and, and we'll, we are not God, amen? So, so there is this very important difference that we have to make, but that Jesus Christ in his perfection and in his innocence and in his purity and his holiness, he is, he is God in the flesh But there are things that he experiences in this life, in the life that he lives for those 33 years that are absolutely astonishing. So as we get into this picture of of the time leading up to the cross, as we get on this little journey, and starting in Matthew 26, we start to see this unpacking of just um, agony and, and sorrow beginning to feel, uh, fill Jesus' heart for the things that he's about to face on the cross. Um, I want to read this to you in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. It's an awesome text about Jesus and, you know, what, what it was, what, what this means. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17 says, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Who's that? That's us. Amen. 
so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Remember, we talked about that word propitiation last week. Propitiation is like it's another word for substitution, that, that he was a substitution for the sins of the people. Amen. You're getting a Bible study lesson. I'm just telling you. Stay with me, all right? Verse verse 18 says, For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Do you know that Jesus, you know, there's this idea that, man, God is so far away, he doesn't understand what I'm facing. Man, he's just way up there. He's just like, he's got so many things on his mind. There's so many things that he's dealing with, and, and there's, he doesn't really get me. The Bible says, no, no, he became like us so he could suffer to become the merciful high priest that we need. So Jesus knows exactly how you're feeling. He knows exactly what you're going through. There's no, there's no feeling or emotion as a human being that Jesus didn't experience as a human being while he lived his life. God humbly came into human history and set aside his continual use of his divine attributes. In doing that, Jesus identifies himself with us. So we can't believe the lie. Well, Jesus doesn't understand. Jesus can't relate. Jesus has never been there. My circumstances are unusual. I can't talk to him about this. That's not true. That's a lie. There is now no condemnation in Christ. Jesus has been where you are. He has felt that. He's there to help you and serve you. And so we're at a point, all right, in the story, we're, we're at a point. It is, it is late Thursday night. And on Friday by 3 p.m., Jesus will be hanging on the cross. That's where we are in the story. And as he faces the cross, we're going to find him at this very deep point of sorrow. So we're getting to this very intimate, very, very private, very personal scene where uh, we see Jesus. And so let's start in Matthew 26. Let's start in verse 26. And we'll just read out some of this text and I'll say a few things and we'll keep going. Matthew 26, 26 says, Now as as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. That's a promise, amen? Verse 30, and when they had sung a hymn, so now they're singing together. Why why do you guys do all that singing in church? Because Jesus liked to sing, amen? I wonder what song it was. You ever wonder that when we get to heaven? Hey, what'd you sing like that last song before you went to the cross? What did you sing? 
Alabare, alabare. I don't think they sung that because they weren't speaking Spanish. Avelino likes to say that, that Spanish is the heavenly language that he likes to say. When we get to heaven, everybody's going to speak Spanish. Official, official language of heaven. Okay. I don't know where that is in the Bible, but I'll go with it. It's fine. But there's this, and if you think about what's happening in this, you know, they've had dinner together. They've, they've been together. And Jesus knows, like, what's coming, right? Understand? Like, he knows. He knows what's about to take place. And he sings a, sings a song. That's so cool. It's so amazing to me. All right, here we go. Let's keep going. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is a place um, east of the city. It's a place where there's, you know, farmers would go and they would have, there was a a wine, I mean, an olive press there and they would, you know, break down the olives and make olive oil and those kinds of things. So here's what it says, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, how, how, is, how is this for a nice sentence? You will all fall away. It's like a, like a gut punch, right, to the disciples. Jesus is telling his, his, his disciples. He's already said one of them's going to betray him. We talked about that last week. And now he's going to say, you're all going to fall away because of me this night. Now, this is a warning coming to the disciples. He says, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that says that I will strike the shepherd. Who's the shepherd? That's Jesus. And the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Verse 32, but after I am raised up, all right, so Jesus already knows he's going to rise again. I will go before you to Galilee. Verse 33, Peter answered him. So, so now Peter is just cutting. Hey, all right, Jesus, hold up a sec. Wait, wait one moment. You know, this, this all fall away, that's not happening for me, Jesus. So, so, so Peter, this is why we, we love Peter, amen? He's just so, I mean, he's, he's just, just gets like, wait, Jesus, you think you're so amazing, but I want to say something. All those other guys, they're going to fall away. But me? No way, Jose. I mean, this guy, the boldness of Peter, look at what he says. He says, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. And Jesus, this is Jesus, Jesus says to him, truly I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die, he still disagrees with Jesus. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. 
And then here's all the disciples. They listen to Peter. Yeah, we won't deny you either, Jesus. No matter what, we're with you, man. Yes. So confident, so self-assured. I won't fall. I'm not going down. I'll die for you, Jesus. I wonder how many of us have entered in a relationship with Jesus like that. Man, no matter what comes, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I won't deny you. I won't be ashamed of you. I'm going to follow you with everything that I am. Monday comes. Man, I fell off the cross like eight times. Man, that lady was coming to the elevator, and I pushed door closed, door closed, door closed. I was impatient. I overate. I got mad at my boss. I said cuss words under my breath to my boss. But that's not a sin. Yes, it is. We, we, we sin in, in motive, word, deed, and thought. I looked at that thing I shouldn't have looked at. I looked at that person in a way I shouldn't have looked at that person. We, 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 we get to a, a time in our relationship with Jesus where we think, man, nothing's come, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. Nothing, nothing, nothing's coming against me. I'm going to serve the Lord. But as soon as something hard comes, what do we do? We compromise. The disciples are just so overcome. So now they've been warned. I want to show you this is so interesting to me thinking about this text. So, so he says, even if I must die with you and, and all the disciples, verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Sit here while I go over there. So they get to this garden in the Mount of Olives called Gethsemane. And now we read that this, uh, Luke tells us that this going to the Mount of Olives is Jesus' custom. This is a place that Jesus likes to go for prayer. It's a very good example. How many of you have a place that you like to go for prayer? So we should all have a place of prayer, amen? There's a place that, that, that Jesus goes because this is the place that he, he is intimate with God. He has that personal, private time with the Father. And so there's a... Great struggle about to happen. Verse 37, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. So, so he goes to the garden and he tells the disciples to wait. We already know. So how many is that, right? He takes three. That's Peter, James, and John. He takes Peter, James, and John with him because he's going to show, he's going to be with them in that really, really difficult moment when he's going to pray. So he has not nine disciples, eight disciples somewhere in the Mount of Olives, not immediately with him, but just off somewhere, amen? Because we know it's eight because Judas isn't there. Judas has gone off already, right? He's already gone off, and he's, he's, uh, he's collaborating with the religious looter, uh, looters, re, re, losers. I meant to say losers, the, the religious rulers, and uh, they're scheming. They're coming up with a plan. And, and Judas has gone to tell them where Jesus is. Judas knows that Jesus likes to go to the Mount of Olives. And so Judas has already conspired 
against Jesus. And so he's gone, he's gone over there. So now there's eight disciples left. And now it's Jesus with um, uh, Peter, James, and John. And it says here, he says, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. So as we enter the garden, the anticipation of Calvary begins to weigh heavy upon the Lord. He is in deep agony. You know, the the upper room fellowship is over. The dinner party is over. And now Jesus begins to feel the weight of the cross before it's ever put on his back. And so he began to be grieved and distressed actually depressed, if you look at the word sorrowful, where, where he had a deep sadness about what was happening, a severe loneliness over him. So you just ask, well, what is it? What are the things that made him grieved and depressed? Well, we already talked about the defection of Judas, right? This wretched traitor who turns against Jesus. How about the deser- desertion of the eleven? right? Jesus is the source of their life. He's the provider of everything. He's, he was their faithful teacher. He was their loyal friend, an encourager, a supporter, and they're all going to abandon him. So of course, he's probably sad and grieved by that. But the denial of Peter himself, Jesus was never ashamed to call sinful Peter his friend. And his brother. And yet Jesus will now be the object of Peter's shame. What about the rejection of the nation of Israel? Here is the Lord of the covenant, the King of grace, the source of hope, Israel's Messiah. He came to redeem the nation of Israel, and yet they will reject and murder him. What about the mockery and the cursing? The one that the angels sing glory to, the one the angels praise, that all the holiness, uh, uh, all all of the beauty of the creation that exalts Jesus, the one who is glorified, and now he's going to be blasted with profanity, and cursing and mocking. And so all these things have built against him, and his own words echoes, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. This could feels like it's going to kill him. In verse 39, and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. What an interesting sentence, amen? We know that the fa- God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the plan for the forgiving of human sin would be the death of the second member of the Trinity. You know, Jesus says elsewhere, no one takes 
my life from me, I lay it down of my own accord. So this is the Father and the Son together in this sacred moment. And Jesus says, Father, this is killing me. I'm about to experience. What I'm about to experience has me in great distress and agony. There's a verse in Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 that says, speaking of Jesus' prayer life while on the earth, it says he prayed with loud cries and tears. You know, Jesus knew what was coming. He knew even in Matthew chapter 20, what was going to take place? That he would suffer and die as a ransom. But it doesn't take away the pain and suffering that Jesus was experiencing. Like he knew it was coming, but it doesn't make it any easier. Some of you have had those days or you're in those days where along the way, sometimes life just gets really brutal and painful. We're in agony, we're distressed, and some of you have had loud cries and loud tears calling out to the Lord. You know, the Bible never guarantees that we'll see everything perfected, all worked out in this life. We won't see perfection in this life. God never promises that. Amen? Show me a verse. Doesn't say that. Much of the unfolding of the promises of perfection, of the perfect sanctification and transformation that we will have will not be until eternity. But between here and there, there are a lot of dark days that are difficult and dark. Amen? Suffering in this life is unavoidable. But if you are in a hard place in your life, if you are suffering, Jesus gives us, amen, permission to cry, to wrestle, to mourn, and to grieve. And this is what he doesn't do. And friend, I just want, to, I want you to hear me today. This is what Jesus doesn't do. And the reason this is important is because as a believer, you have to know that the enemy ha- is coming. He wants more than anything else to destroy the work of God in your life. Satan does not want you to have anything to do with God, a relationship with Christ. He wants to rob you of God's plan for your life. He wants to rob you of the blessing of being in a relationship with him. But even in that, even in difficulty, whether it's of the world whether it's in difficulty because of consequence of sin, because of a scheme that the enemy has laid out for you. Maybe there is 
um, some element of suffering that God is requiring, as his word teaches us, that there is something that God has laid at your feet for you to endure so that he can make you into his image. That there is a, that God is going to use whatever it is that you are facing because he wants you to be more like him. And he's going to use that thing to actually build your faith. The point is that what, what Jesus never does in his moment of agony and his suffering, he never curses God. He never says, is there a God? He never says, does God love me? He never says, is God sovereign in control of all things? He never questions God's sovereignty. He never says, is God good? I think he's great, but is he good? He doesn't go to any of those questions. What does he do, do in, in the book of Mark? He says, Abba, Father. In other words, Abba, Dad. Like a dad in the garden. Jesus says, Dad, Abba, Father. Like Daddy God. I mean, I remember my kids were little. My daughter used to call me Bappy. Bappy, 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 Bappy. You know, and as a father, I didn't look down at her and say, good luck. Cheer up, little one. I remember she, uh, one time we were at a stadium and uh, she ran and she hit her head. She cut her head on the top of her head under one of the bleachers. And I remember I looked at her and I was like, did that hurt? What are you going to do about it? I'm her father. I was like, get away. Get away. Cry, baby. She's my daughter. Right? Some of you have kids. It's like, when your kid cries out, when your kid, your kid is hurting, when your kid is in pain, and that kid looks to you, mommy, daddy, this is the picture of the garden, is that Jesus is appealing to the father. Daddy God? I'm hurting. I'm in agony. This is hard. This is not easy. It shows us that Jesus actually, in one, one, in one gospel, it says he falls to a knee. And then in another gospel, it says he, he laid on his face, prostrate before the Lord. If you've ever seen a Christian enter into a time of worship and they get on their knees. It's to honor the Lord. And then they fall on their face, prostrate before the Lord. It's, it's, it's recognizing God's holiness. That God is holy and God is perfect. And I, I am in complete subjection to the Father. And that's what Jesus does. This is hard. This is very difficult. Sustain me in your strength. 
Jesus is like, man, I could die right here just from the agony. In verse 39, it says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. And now the struggle is over whether he is willing to go to the cross. The cross is so terrifying that he asks the Father if there's a way that it can be avoided. He's not trying to say, let's not redeem sinners. That's not what he's trying to say. Father, I take it back. I don't want to do my part in the covenant. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus knows what he's going to go through. But it's a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus to say, Father, is there another way that we can redeem sinners? (laughs) To just think about that possibility. Does it have to be this? He's not wanting to avoid the redemptive work. He just wants to, to, to wrestle with the idea of another way to accomplish it. And he says, if there is, let this cup pass from me. And this cup is very important. It's symbolic. Symbolic. In John 18, 11, Jesus asked this question, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? What is the cup? Have you ever wondered that when you read this? Because I'm sure, I'm sure that, that you've all probably heard this text, at least most of you, where you've seen, um, or maybe we've read it on a Sunday where we read, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. What does he mean, cup? He's saying cup. What, what does that mean? In Isaiah 51, 17, he speaks, he speak, the Bible speaks of the cup of God's wrath. In Jeremiah 25, 15, it speaks of the cup of the wine of wrath. It is the cup of wrath that Jesus is talking about, and it represents the fury of God over sin. It represents the just and holy punishment of God against sin. See, every day that you and I sin, God's wrath is being deposited into this cup. So check this out. Jesus died when? 2,000 years ago. And it was the plan of God's redemptive power to fill this cup with all our sins, even sins you haven't committed. The Bible says the sins of the whole world, they were put into this cup. And because that full measure of sin was deposited into that cup, a full measure of God's wrath was to be poured out. And so now Jesus is faced with the full wrath of God. And with tears in his eyes, he, with loud cries, he looks to the Father and say, is there any option but for me to drink every drop of wrath that is in this cup? 
John 12, verse 27 says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come this hour. Jesus knew this is why he came. This is why he came to seek and to save those that are lost. Hallelujah. He knew the plan to drink the full cup of God's wrath, and that plan was beginning to unfold in the garden, and Jesus felt it. And then we get to Jesus' amazing response, wonderful response. What did Jesus say? Yet not as I will, but as you will. How many of you have ever prayed like that before? When uh, there's a lot of discussion in theological circles about the will of man and the will of God, and and we have we're presented with these choices. You know, are are we robots? Do we just just do whatever God says all the time, and He just controls everything, or do we have a free will? And what does that free will mean? If God you know, how does God uh, save us? Does he change our hearts so then we can respond to God? And how do I make decisions in life? Do I, is it me making the decision? Or if, if God, the Holy Spirit is directing me a certain way, is that the will of God? Like, how do I know what the will of God is? Should I buy Frosted Flakes or Captain Crunch today? What is God's will? Oh my goodness, so difficult. So difficult. Oh, should it GMC or Ford? Let's see. Apple or Android? Come on. Cowboys or Texans? Come on. Uh, you see these, what, what is God's will? What is my will? But I think the essence of what we're seeing here in this moment in the garden is that Jesus is praying the will of God to be done in his life. I have heard, there's some, you got to be careful what you hear out there. Amen. There's some, some goofy things out there. There are, there are actually Christians who will tell you, no, if you pray the will of God, you're praying in doubt. Whoa, whoa, whoa. So we don't pray the way Jesus prays? Really? Jesus prayed, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And in the garden, he says, not my will, but your will be done. That, that is a prayer of faith. Because now you are leaning and relying and dedicating and submitting to the full authority and sovereignty and providence of God in whatever situation that you're facing. Sometimes you don't know what you're going to get. Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. You don't know tomorrow. You don't know what tomorrow holds. You have no idea what will happen next week, a year from now, five years from now. 
And so when we pray as believers, Father, your will be done in my life. It is a prayer of faith because you are asking God for his plan to unfold in your life and you trust, you are showing your trust that he is good. Whatever you have, Father, this will not be easy. Your will be done. That's why I don't, I'm just telling you, if somebody comes to me, uh, Johnny, just come up here real quick, real quick. We only have like five minutes left and I'm already over my time. Johnny is, uh, let's, for example, he's not, uh, I think you're not sick, are you? So if, if a brother comes to me, Andrew, would you pray for me? I'm, I'm sick. So you're getting a glimpse of how to pray now. We're getting this example from Jesus. Amen. Can God heal him? Can God heal him? He's the God of the impossible. He's a miracle working God. Amen. Does God have to heal him? No. Does God promise that in every situation by prayer, faith, always and all time, no matter what, I will do the healing? No. And that's why we as believers, we can wrestle with this. But do we, what do we want from him? We want God's healing. But even like that lame beggar, do you guys remember the beggar who came through the roof? His friends lowered him in and Jesus was there and he was sitting around and they lowered him down. Jesus said, Jesus told him something before he healed him. What did he say? Your sins are forgiven. Because the most important thing for Jesus, right, is for his sins to be forgiven. Right. But then he did a healing. But I'm just telling you right now, there is so much power in the prayer. Father, heal him. You can do it. You have the power. I trust in you. But Father, not our will, your will be done. That is a prayer of faith. That is, that is you saying, God, your will be done in his life, her life. I wish, we wish we could control it. We think we're so fancy with our ideas and our philosophy, right? It's like out trying to outthink God. But if I just say these words, if I just, if I just, oh, this is the formula. And Jesus is in the garden, not my will. Sometimes his answer is yes. Sometimes his answer is no. And sometimes his answer is not right now. And as believers, we, we are not interested so much in the healing as we are in the relationship that this person has with God. Amen? And so I'm praying that even in my prayer, man, Father, heal him. But Father, help him to recognize that you love him and that you're a good that no matter what we face in this life, you are with us, that you guide us. And I pray your healing touch over his life because you have the power. You are a miracle-working God. There is no one like you, Father. But Father, I just pray that he seeks you and that through this, his faith would be strengthened and he would experience forgiveness of sins and have an eternal relationship with you. In Jesus' name. That's a prayer, amen? amen? Thanks, bud. Appreciate it. So let's finish.
As Jesus drew close to the cross, what was on his mind? Not the betrayal, not the false arrest, not the illegal trials, not the scourging, not the spitting, not the mocking, not even carrying the cross, not the scourging that ripped his flesh bare, not even the pounding in on the nails, the crown of thorns. The horror of the wrath of God includes alienation and separation from his father. Do you guys remember on the cross, Jesus echoed a few, seven phrases. And one of his phrases he echoes as he's dying on the cross, he says, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God turns his back when Jesus is on the cross because he could not look upon sin. That there was this mystery of this separation between the Father and the Son. And that as the the Bible says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. It says Jesus never knew sin. Jesus was perfect in every way in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, perfect and holy in every way that at this moment, the Bible says that for our sake, he made him to be sin. And so Jesus is feeling this profound pain of God's wrath from all the sins of all time being laid on him. And in the end, Jesus comes back to, thy will be done. And at this point, Luke in 22.44 says that Jesus began to sweat great drops of blood. His sweat was like a medical term is that thrombosis of blood. There's a story of a little boy who who fell into a pool drowning and that as the father showed up to the pool, the boy was in the pool and he see his lifeless son laying in the water and he jumps in after him. He picks his lifeless body up out of the water, lays him on the side and begins to call the emergency, calls the uh, EMS and ambulance. And, and as he's there, he's doing his best to try to revive him. And he gets to the hospital And the doctors, thank God, they were able to revive him and bring him back to life. But as his son was laying there in the recovery room, his face was was broken out with red all over his face. And and the, the father asked the doctor, why is his face so red? It's because the doctor said, because... He had thrombosis of blood that it is very likely that when your son was in the water, he was crying out to you for somebody to save him. And with all of his might and all that he had, he was crying out for someone to save him. So much physiologically that had come out of your son at that moment in the water, that his, the, the capillaries, at the ends of his capillaries, the, they began to burst with blood that came through his skin. And that's why his face was red. This is a very rare 
medical condition that is precipitated by the most extreme duress. And so we have Jesus Christ, the son of glory, the chosen one, the Messiah, in absolute agony. And he's now sweating drops of blood. You need to know that whatever you are facing, Jesus has been there. We have an example in God. We have an example in God the Son, Jesus Christ. So God comes to intervene. In verse 40, it says, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. The disciples were not ready. They had been warned, but they were not ready. They had been warned that they were going to fall away, Jesus told them, and they weren't ready. What were they doing? They were sleeping. And he found them sleeping, and he said, Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing. This is a key verse. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Verse 42, again for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. So the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Verse 46, rise, let us be going, my betrayer is at hand. I think about Jesus in that moment. All the disciples should have been praying, but they weren't ready. When temptation came, right? Just like, just like Peter, when temptation finally came, they all fell away. They were all scattered. None of them, all of them abandoned Jesus. This is why the evidence of the resurrection is so powerful. Because here we see that the, the disciples scattered. Jesus died. And it wasn't until he rose again and shows up to the disciples that they finally realize that he is who he said he was, the one who conquers death. And they, they gladly, gladly became martyrs for the cause of Christ because they saw him risen. It wasn't before his death that they were that committed. It was after the resurrection when they saw him rise from death that they finally became fully committed to Christ. Amen? But Jesus was ready. And think about that little phrase. It says, The hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise. Rise. Let us be going. I can see Jesus in the garden looking through the Mount of Olives, through those olive trees, and here he sees this crowd. These Roman soldiers and these religious rulers, these Pharisees, with their torches and their swords to come. And here's Jesus. He rises up. He was finally ready. Hell had come against him, but he pleaded to the Father. An author says it this way. 
He stands covered with bloody sweat on his face and dripped on his clothing. He is bloodied but unyielding. Jesus courageously rises ready to face the cross. He likely looked through the olive trees and saw the flashing of torches in the hands of the crowd led by his friend, Judas. After 33 years, he was ready to finally face the cross. There's a lesson here that we need to see. Yes, we see the power of Christ over Satan. You see that, amen? We see the power of his love, his power of his love for the Father over his own fears. We see the greatness of his love for sinners, amen? We see all of that. But there is a lesson for us here that is basic and profound, and we want to learn how he dealt with temptation so we can deal with it. In verse 41, he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So how do we deal with temptation and suffering? Don't raise your hand. But how many of you would honestly say, you know what, I dealt with some temptation last week. The enemy came against me hard. He really is coming along messing with me. How many of you have dealt with some suffering, some difficulty, some painful moment? How do we deal with all that? Jesus shows us to put our trust in God through active prayer. Our spirit may be willing, but our flesh is miserably weak. We can't stand on good intentions. Amen? And some of you are like, you know, I intend to pray, and eventually I'll get around to it. Good intentions are not enough. We need to pray. If you are struggling to do what is right in the face of temptation, in the face of adversity, in the face of pain, you need to do what Jesus did. That's pray. You need the power of prayer in your life. Cry out for God, God's power. That is the path to triumph. Amen? You received that word today? Praise God. You've got a big hand. Praise Would you stand to your feet today? I'm going to ask the band to sing that song one more time, just the, the chorus for a few moments. As we reflect on um, this passage, this text, we think about Jesus. I think it's right for us to respond in worship. Amen? I mean, just to think about Christ. And what I want you to do as they sing this beautiful song, I just want you to see Jesus in his suffering. To just think about Christ. Christ. 